Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show today a very special guest whose career has spawned a lifetime of entertainment that has made her a verified icon to audiences around the world. With a voluminous list of credits to her name, she's appeared in such classics as Alien, The Witches of Eastwick, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Please welcome to the show, Veronica Cartwright. Hi there, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to kick things off the same way I do with every guest uh, and ask the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And for context, it's why do you think horror connects to people? What's your connection to horror? However you choose to interpret it, but why horror? Well, I I think it was by chance that I ended up being in so many... uh, movies that seem to scare people. Um, uh, I don't know. It wasn't anything that I chose. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, The Birds, I guess, was horror because it was an everyday um, thing that we, we, we see everywhere we go. There are birds. Right. And so that was based on that Daphne du Maurier um, book. And I think that's what made it scary is because no matter where you went, you you saw it. And and it was something that could possibly happen. Who knows? I mean, I remember once I had a shingled roof, and I thought, what is going on? And I'm hearing this tap, tap, tapping, and I go outside, and there must have been 30 birds on my roof. I sort of shouted up. I'd been in that movie before, and I didn't need to have it now. Um <laughs> But, I mean, you look at birds different ways. All of a sudden, you you look up on a wire, and there's like 40 birds sitting on there. It's very weird. And I think that sort of sort of brought a fear to people because mm-hmm. it was so commonplace. Um, I have been lucky in being able to sort of have really good parts that just happen to be in movies that – scare can I say bad words you can say all the bad words you want yeah <laughs> that scare the shit out of people people <laughs> like to be scared um I think it's it's I don't know what it is um uh like alien um that was sort of an unknown entity that was out there none of us even tried to communicate with it I mean if we had tried to communicate with it who knows maybe um, it would have had more, um, you know, compassion or whatever. I except- wonder if the ending of Alien would have been different if you tried diplomacy. <laughs> well, at one point, we did have a whole conversation with um, Ian Holm, who was the robot, mm-hmm. and we put him all together. And we had had a whole conversation, and he said, does anybody try to communicate with it? Of course, we hadn't. It was sort of like a Beauty and the Beast thing. It was like um, Ridley sort of explained it like it was a fawn. And if you approach it quickly, it panics and it it just starts flailing out. Um, I think the concept that it originally was ended up being changed as the movie progressed. And But what was so interesting about the way you shot it was it was very Hitchcockian in the sense that you don't see it for so long you see portions of it or a hand and it grows so quickly I mean it starts out as an egg and ends up being that face hugger and 
and then, you know, the penis thing, and then <laughs> it's like all of a sudden an adult. And the whole reason that it has to lay eggs and stuff and, and capture people is so that it can t- continue its lifespan, which had been, of course, put on hold for so long. Now, it's interesting that you kind of make the, the penis relation to alien. And I wanted to ask you about this a, a little bit later in the show, but since you brought it up, uh, do you think Alien is a movie that in some way is about sexual politics? Um. Oh, you've obviously read that thing where it came on that I was supposed to be uh, transgender or something like that. Well, I have read that. Which, that came out last year. I didn't know I was supposed to have been transgender. Somebody said they read it on the little thing in Alien 2 where they, um, aliens, where it said it on my thing. Well, that was a first for me to know, although... I do end up with a crew cut. Ridley wanted to cut my hair. I mean, I had just come off of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and my hair was really long. And that was about six hours of torture Why he kept saying, no, shorter. Oh, oh, well, yeah, shorter. And, oh, well, let's chop it all up. I mean, by the time I finished, I ended up with, you know, an inch-long crew cut, which was interesting when I came back to California. Um, nobody had that hair, and right. they couldn't. You know, what the hell is going on here? Um, so uh, Liza Minnelli did it, and then it was okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was just such an interesting thing. And I used to always wear, I one of my things was I used to wear my dad's old school ties. I mean, we're British, mm-hmm. so my dad had, you know, gone to school in England and stuff like that. We found all these old ties. And I used to wear ties all the time. So here I had this crew cut and ties and and um, or antique clothing or something. But um, I think it Alien ended up partially because you weren't sure what it was. Right. Um, this, one of the scariest scenes to me is after we're all gone and, and she's in that space shuttle – you watch her undress and everything, and he's right behind her, and nobody notices it until all of a sudden he comes forward. And that is, like, terrifying. I mean, you've actually been watching this, and it's right behind her the whole time. I mean, Balaji was just absolutely amazing. And uh, he was <clears throat> seven foot tall, and they built this suit to him. And, of course, the whole movie had sexual overtones. I mean, all of Giger's sets. I mean, they were all an orifice of some kind. Um, You know, big vaginas when we walked into the um, caves and stuff like that. Everything had a sexual overtone to it. Even the kind of... The head, which was like a a big penis too i mean there were a lot of penises in there um (laughs) i mean our little guy when we had sigourney and i had to shoot a scene and nobody knew what the little critter looked like and we said well it would help if we knew what the hell it was that we were supposed to be talking about and relating to right so they took us down to the um, special effects department and um at this point it was um, just sort of a gray. It hadn't didn't have its coloring in it. But the guy, when he was describing it, was going, oh, it, 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 it breathes. See, we'll be pressing these things, and it's going to breathe, and it gets bigger. And then it has these teeth that come. I mean, his description of this big dick was, <laughs> it was just like, it was hysterical. But, you, I mean, 
the whole thing had tons of phallic symbols in it. And um, it, it was so fascinating because, like, when we were the first uh, – we had seen that, but we hadn't seen it actually functioning. And then, when, of course, when we did the, the um, eating scene um, where we're all – you know, he starts to um, come out of John Hurt's chest um, – we were all left up in the um, dressing rooms for hours while they got John Hurt ready and packed and stuffed with offal, and they had built a plaster chest, and he was, like, kneeling down. And um, and then when we came down, there were big buckets of offal around. The stench was horrible, and everything was covered in plastic, and, of course, we became so four cameras so they could capture everything. And I was told I'd get a little blood on me, but of course I became so fascinated watching this thing breaking out. <laughs> I just leaned right into a blood jet, and of course I ended up with it on my face, which was really nice. <laughs> um, so all the reactions were real. It was like we were discovering things as we went along in that movie. It was um, it was an interesting set, and. I don't think anything had been done like that before, where there was such a sense of reality. We were basically truckers in space. Right. And um, it was so visceral, and nobody had seen anything like that before. Would you say it is partially due to Ridley Scott's approach to filmmaking, that it, it is constructed in that way? Um, probably. I mean, he was very hands-on as far as wanting to be an operator. He was, um, he'd done tons of commercials before. He was a graphic artist, I mean. And Balaji, who they got, they found in a pub, he was a graphic artist, which was totally interesting. But Ridley had a lot to do with what the concept of this thing looked like. And the further it got into its life, it would bruise very quickly, and so that's why it became so dark. Um, he, originally, they thought maybe it would be a hermaphrodite, um, but then it obviously had other things in mind when it was done. Um, and if you think about it, every horror movie that came out after that that had any sort of a beast looked like the alien. Right. Um, it's like they couldn't get a Godzilla even looked like the alien. And the abyss, which was a water beast, came up out of the water, and it had the same shape head. It wasn't until they did Super 8 that it actually became something else. And um, I thought that concept was really cool. It's like we couldn't get away from penis-shaped creatures for a couple of decades. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> everybody's obsessed with a penis. Um, so. so you had uh, mentioned earlier your dad and uh, that you are from England, but mm -hmm. you grew up primarily here in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, we immigrated to Canada. Um, after the war, my parents were trying to build a house. My mom was a nurse, and my dad was a technical designer. And um, they just couldn't get the lumber or anything like that. So he was sort of given a choice. He could go to Australia. Mm-hmm. And he didn't particularly want to be a, a sheep herder. Um, so he decided that you in those days you needed a sponsor to be able to get in. And it turned out we had a distant aunt who lived in Canada. So she sponsored us into Canada. And we lived there for a couple of years. And then we drove across country and ended up in El Segundo. 
And because your dad started in an industry that was not show business, but you and your sister both very early on ended up working in film, what was the... What was that moment? When did that transition happen? Well, when we arrived, we didn't know anybody. My dad was trying to find a, a job, which mm-hmm. he did um, over at Rocket Dine because his he was very technical and did uh, rocket engines and things like that. Um, my mother asked the landlady. We didn't even have a telephone. I asked the landlady, um, how do you meet people? And... She said, well, you know, your girls are awfully cute. And the lady down there, her daughter's in modeling. You might want to talk to her. And that was Ruthie Robinson's mother. And um, we ended up getting uh, an agent called Lola Moore, who just had tons of kids. And you'd just sort of go out on these cattle <laughs> interviews, you know, where you'd line up. And, and the first interview that my sister went on, was uh, Somebody Up There Likes Me with um, Pierre Angeli and uh, Paul Newman. And she ended up getting the part at three and a half. Wow. And uh, we used to do tons of modeling. I was t- Angela was very dark-haired and dark eyes, and I had blonde hair and blue eyes and um, thousands of freckles. So I looked totally all-American. I ended up becoming the Kellogg's girl and stuff like that. I, I mean... Um, you know, dancing with the sugar smack seal and <laughs> lovely things like that. Um, so it was just sort of accidental that we got into it. And uh, um, I did a job. My first acting thing was Zangray Theater, which was way before your time as a black and white. The guest star of the week was Barbara Stanwyck. And um, she ends up getting shot and, of course, they poured Hershey's syrup all over her for the blood, which I always thought was just like, oh, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> what was I? I mean, I was like seven or eight years old. I mean, it was pretty trippy. And it was just, uh, we went, uh, we met these guys, uh, Frank uh, Weika and Bill Lockhart, and he had like little sort of groups where you'd put on plays and little performances and things like that. And um, so, I don't know, we just sort of, it was accidental, totally accidental. And then uh, years later, my dad was a boat specialist, and uh, Tora 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 came up. And I think my dad had been at the studio with my sister. And he goes, well, you know, I know how to do boats and stuff like that. So, and he wasn't in the business, but he spent so long doing the miniatures on Tora Tora that... Uh, he was 12 hours shy of getting his uh, set designer card. So they put him on another show so he could be a set designer. And my dad, um, having studied in England and working in Canada, had perfected a different process than they had here where you could actually show three sides of an object in perspective and only fly one wall. Well, of course, they'd never seen anything like this before and the crews loved doing his you know sets and things like that because they were just so clear right and um he knew all the bins where everything was i mean he worked at at, um, paramount for years and um so they would just call him up well they didn't want to promote him because they loved how he could draw if he became an art director then you you can't draw anymore that becomes somebody else's job 
So um, anyway, he was uh, about to be a set, you know, on um, Winds of War. And the miniseries? Yes, the miniseries. Yeah, I watched that. And um, the person that my dad worked for got really ill, and he goes, John, I'm promoting you. So my dad was art director on Winds of War, and he was nominated for an Emmy, and, and then he ended up doing a bunch of movies. I love that he came into the industry after his kids and still <laughs> and ended up getting nominated for an Emmy. That's I know. Amazing. It's totally cool. And you said that this all kind of happened by accident just for sheer socialization's sake, but when you look at your career, almost from the get-go, you were in these landmark moments in film. You already talked about, about the birds and being cast and working with Hitchcock. You worked on things like Leave it to Beaver and The Twilight Zone and The Children's Hour. It's, it's just amazing that from the beginning, you were in all of these things that have been cultural touchstones. Yeah, I, I have. I've been very fortunate. I mean, I got the birds because I had done a movie called The Children's Hour, right. which was Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine, and uh, James Garner. And, of course, the theme was lesbianism. And um, so I was the kleptomaniac who was forced <laughs> into telling the lie that I saw them kissing. And... and it was a very important movie. They had shot it before um, and called it The Loudest Whisper. But even though the play had to do with that subject matter, the first time it came out, they didn't um, follow that through. And it was interesting because um, once a lot of parents realized what the movie was about, um, they pulled their kids out of it. Right. Um, they didn't want their kids to be associated with it. Now, we'd been working with Bill Lockwood, who was like the musical director of this little group, and Frank Weika, and they lived together. And my mother, God bless her soul, she says, oh, this is just like Frank and Bill, only it's two women. <laughs> well, it seemed perfectly natural to me. We'd, been, we'd had lunch with them. We knew them for years. I mean, it just seemed to her, oh, okay, fine. I mean, it didn't seem weird or anything. What, what possessed my mother? I mean, that was pretty pretty clever. And you, as an actor, have never shied away from doing LGBT content, uh, and I, I really appreciate that. Have you noted over the course of your career a change in attitude in the industry about making those kinds of movies? <laughs> well, I don't know. The scripts have always been so funny. I mean, Sparkler, which is Darren, um, he requested meeting me, and I remember going and having lunch in a restaurant that's not there anymore. But we just talked about it, and, I mean, I'm not gay, but I certainly don't have any problem, in, you know, um, playing that. Um, and so he gave me Sandy Martin's number, who ends up playing my uh, lover in the piece and uh, I talked to her and, and she is gay and she goes well you know a lot of people once they hit their 40s and stuff like that they've been disappointed in a lot of their relationships with men or whatever and they decide they're going to experiment <laughs> <laughs> and had, I said oh okay so anyway uh, Darren had worked it out with his dad that we would go to strip clubs because it was supposed to be a very low class strip club so right. we went to these strip clubs all on Lancashire Boulevard and all in the depths of the valley it was hysterical and it was funny because one of them um, one of the girls came up she goes you're Veronica Cartwright aren't you 
what are you playing? I said, well, I'm playing a stripper. And he said, oh, do you want to practice now? I mean, like, I said, no, that's okay. I, that's all right. I, let me uh, get a little used to it first. And then Sandy comes up and she goes, hi, can I buy you a boxed wine? I mean, because it's, <laughs> that was Sandy Martin. It was so hysterical. I said, Sure. <laughs> I mean, it was like these horrible boxed wines. I mean, it was ghastly. It was so much fun. I had a ball doing that movie. And Sandy's just, she's a, a hoot and a half. Uh, when, back to the Children's Hour briefly, when the movie came out because of the lesbian subject matter, you said that people involved were pulling their kids out of the production. But do you remember any backlash from, like, the media and audiences because of that kind of, because that was fairly... Uh, well, it was risque. I yeah. mean... Um, that was something that hadn't been dealt with right. before. Um, well, we weren't allowed to go to the premiere. Um, I remember uh, Karen Balkan and myself, um, we all got dressed up. We had interviews with Army Archard and everything like that. Um, it was on the condemned list for Catholic um, Church. Always a mark of quality in my yes, mind. Uh, yeah. I know. <laughs> X-rated. Um, and uh, so... They took us, Karen and myself, to the Brown Derby and bought us dinner while the movie was <laughs> going. But the next day, my mom, she took me to see it. Oh, I love it. Which that. was so cool. It was down on Wilshire Boulevard, and, you know, it was sort of an exclusive kind of thing. And, yeah, we all went as a family and watched it. That's I mean, a... I, if you'd done it, I mean. And Shirley MacLaine, she just sort of was an icon. She was just so cool with the the cast and the I mean and the crew and she sort of took me under her wing um and years later I mean I realized what a major major influence she had had on my life and career and um I was doing a play actually on uh, at the Hartford stage we had done it at the Mark Taper Forum and then moved it to the Hartford, and it was the Christmas parade. And um, so we couldn't perform that night. So I knew Shirley MacLaine was doing her one-woman show. So I went over, and I watched the one-woman show, and I went backstage after. And uh, they said, well, does she know you're coming? I said, no, I just thought maybe I would say something because I had done this movie with her. Anyway, she invites me into a room. She says, I have followed your career. Oh. I mean, it was like, oh, my God. I said, well, I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a major influence in why I am doing this. I mean, it was just, it was fascinating. Um, it was cool. I mean, she really was, I, I thought, you know, terrific to me anyway. And uh, so, but... The, doing the Children's Hour is what Alfred Hitchcock saw me in. And that's, and that's why he requested me to come in and meet him for the birds. And, um, you know, I was 12, and I just don't think he, he could have been any nicer to me. I know that there's stories going around about, you know, with Tippy and stuff like that. I never saw any of that. Right. I never felt any sort of fear or anything. I could ask him any question and he would answer it. He loved the fact that I was born in Bristol and that was where his favorite um, wine bar was and wine cellar, you know. And of course he would be telling me names of wines. I was 12 and I'm going, <laughs> oh, okay. And I, I wish I had that list now. 
Um, he just uh, told me how to cook a steak because this would be very important when I got married one day. I would need to know how to do that. And it works. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Um, I took him tea every afternoon at four, and I'd sit there and while he had his tea and his biscuits, and we would just talk. I, I thought he was wonderful. Was it a particularly difficult movie to make because of the effects work, or no? Um, well, they were all real birds. I mean, there wasn't, you know, CGI except for those seagulls that you see um, at the end. I mean, like when the birds came down the um, into the living room. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there were like 15,000 birds that they had put into uh, the chimney shaft in uh, like crates that they could pull the things. And we were in a gigantic plastic bubble with an oxygen tank and then the lens of the camera. And um, they just started releasing these birds. And, of course, birds, they go like this and they all go up. And when they realized they were hitting a plastic ceiling, they just would drop like stones. Oh, no. It was weird. It was very weird. Um, well, as a 12-year-old girl, is that scary at all? Oh, it was a... creepy. It was very creepy. Um, and, and poor Jessica, she trod on one, and she was so mortified and so upset. I mean, you would, you learned to just, because we shot it a bunch of times, <laughs> you learned to sort of shuffle your feet. You didn't walk like normal because, oh, it was, it was weird. It was weird. Wow. And then, of course, we had mechanical birds, and we had we had different kinds. We had a trained one named Buddy. He is the one who would bite the hand and stuff like that. And but you know, it's so interesting because, like the jungle gym scene, I said uh, to Alfred, I said, "Well, aren't people going to notice that there's like cardboard birds there?" <laughs> um, because they had just some of them were just like flat, just pieces of cardboard. Um, And then they put real birds in there. And he says, no, your eye sees movement and you automatically assume everything is alive. And to this day, you can watch that movie. You can't tell the dead birds, I mean, the cardboard birds from the live ones. I would even not, yeah. I mean, it was fascinating. Um, And like at the end of the movie, when we go to go out of the door, And uh, Rod Taylor opens up the door, and we sort of go out, and all those birds are out there. I mean, I have pictures where they had tons of birds on the set, and a bird wrangler with a big net (laughs) and all. Um, And uh, I said, well, aren't they going to notice that there's no door? And he says, Veronica, if there was a door, I wouldn't be able to see you. (laughs) So he says, let's show them how it's done, Rod. And so Rod Taylor literally mimes opening the door. He goes like this. There's a shaft of light that comes in it. You never even think about the fact that there wasn't a door. I love that. And he says to me, that is the magic of movies. And it's true. And when we were doing Alien, there were so many influences, I believe, that Ridley got, whether it was subliminal or not, um, from Alfred Hitchcock, because he shot it like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. You don't actually see stuff all the time. You know, you think you see it. Right. Was it there? What does it look like? You, in your mind, and that's part of the horror thing of what is, you know, your um, fears right. that you make it look like. 
I, uh, speaking of horror and classics of horror, one other uh, role of yours from your youth that I want to ask you about, because it's a personal favorite of mine, is the episode of The Twilight Zone you were in, I Sing the Body Electric. Right. Uh, first off, I think it's one of the best episodes of the show because there's something so innately human about it. Um, and I just wonder what it was like working on, on that set and uh, I, I also want to ask you, because the show is all sort of about this replacement mom mm-hmm. um, who ends up seeming more human than the people, do you think, going back to kind of the connection of horror and some of the identity issues we talked about in Alien as well, and I guess we could speak to Invasion of the Body Snatcher in this way, do you think that genre can allow us to use otherness to explore what humanity means? Uh, sure. Well, look... what. We have robots now that serve you food. They can do all sorts of things. Um, they're experimenting with robots that can give medications and things like that. And you sort of, they can put a human voice to it. I mean, it doesn't have the skin or whatever. Right. But um, yeah, what was interesting, I thought uh, it was the only show that Ray Bradbury did um, because he got into a fight with. Um, Rod Serling, um, there was a scene that he wanted to be in there. And, of course, what did you have? You had 28 minutes or something like that, longer than you have now, right? <laughs> to tell the story. And uh, he was very upset the way that it was edited. And um, so he just never worked with Rod Serling again. Um, but, I mean... Sh- the, my character, Anne, she had to be sort of coerced into She didn't want any. She didn't want uh, grandmother. She, didn't, she wanted to wallow in what it was that she remembered about her mother. Right. And you, um, she sort of reluctantly went down and picked out the eyes and the hair and all of that stuff. Um, and by the fact that this robot stood in front of the bus or so that I was protected, um, that put on a human, uh, uh, much more of a human quality. I wouldn't have jumped in front of a bus, but here was this. <laughs> but you know what I mean? All of a sudden, yeah. here's this person who you've now started to identify as your grandmother. I didn't like her. But that's where the human part comes into all of a sudden. Here's somebody who's willing to sacrifice themselves, who is like a mother, who probably, you know, his mother had sacrificed things. And so it did bring a human quality to it. I, I, I think in a weird sort of way with how advanced we're getting with things, they're making them more and more human. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Alexa. You just talk to her or Siri on the telephone, and you can say, and and you say uh, call dad, right? And and she go, which number would you like? Uh, and I go, oh, home. All right, calling dad, John the fifth Cartwright, because his middle initial is V for Vincent, but she doesn't <laughs> know it's a V. She calls him the fifth, John the fifth Cartwright. It's just. <laughs> Uh, we had an Alexa in the apartment for a long time, and I discovered that you can ask her, you can have conversations with it. Like uh-huh. I've had her sing songs to me before, uh, 
And then one day, this is this is a true horror for listeners. I was just standing there making a sandwich, and I saw the blue ring was on, and I hadn't been talking to it. And I was like, "All right, you're done. I'm turning this off." Because I felt like Alexa. She was absorbing, and and it's supposedly, I mean, other people can hack right into her. Right, and I, I, you know, because the blue ring is only on when it's listening, and I don't, I, I just happened to notice, and I, was, I did not like that. So unlike the grandmother from the Twilight Zone, I was like, you are done out of my house. <laughs> uh, but um, so you've been involved in so many films that have been cultural touchstones and fan favorites. Uh, and you have such a, a, a big resume, so many TV shows that you've been on, The X-Files, ER, Emmy nominations for those both. Um, when you're working on something... Do you ever feel like you know, as opposed to another project, this one is going to be something that's going to stick? Or or is it just from job to job? Oh, it's, you know, sometimes you just fall in love with a, a part or a character and the people that are working and you think, oh, this is really good. And then nothing happens with it. It's really disheartening mm-hmm. sometimes, but... I mean, I've been lucky enough that I don't have to take parts that I don't feel that I can make some sort of growth right? Um, as myself. I mean, it was interesting doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers because that, again, is, you know, a, a pod person. It was people who didn't want to really love. They don't want to really be devastated in a situation. They just decide, well, let's just turn off and just live in a bunch of gray matter. Right. And um, I had been involved with somebody at the time, and it was, it's like one of those things you, you know, you split up, but at the same time, you, it was devastating. Right. But so, and what is it, it's better to have that devastation, to have that really true love or whatever it is, um, than just go around as a, Blob, who's you know really not thinking of anything, and um, I remember going with Brooke and and Jeff. Uh, we decided to go to a restaurant, and Jeff is you know he's so animated to begin with. Jeff Goldblum, um, and he starts talking to the taxi driver, and he's going, "Well, this is really you know we're we're sort of here and we're we're looking forward to going this." And, and this taxi driver said nothing it was so <laughs> it started to get and then Jeff's going I mean it's like by the time we got out he goes that man was a total pod I, just <laughs> a total pod it's like going to the bank and talking to those tellers they don't care I mean it's like and it was true I mean he just sort of had potted out he didn't so that's interesting. After being in the movie, you kind of recognize pod, pod people characteristics in real life now? <laughs> yeah. You go, well, that's a person who doesn't want to really feel anything. they just rather live in me- mediocrity. Right. And, uh, and, it, and it was, I'm sure, an allegory for that whole thing of emotions and things. Well, and that's a theme that we talk about on the show often is how when genre material done in a smart way can often reflect things that we don't often get to say otherwise. Right. And to use the idea of a, a, a blank pod person from outer space, but there are pod people here, and they're just from down the block. Yeah, yeah. And they just 
gray matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, being on sets of things that you really get connected to, and then in the, there's that disheartening moment where maybe just nothing happens with it or it doesn't get the traction that, say, another movie does. Do you have a role or roles in your career that are particularly dear to you that you wish more people had seen or connect to? Well, I, I did a movie in Wisconsin by um, a professor who's uh, in Wisconsin, and he teaches drama. And um, we did this movie. They requested me to go and do this movie. I mean, it, I only worked on it for three days, but the character was so totally interesting. She was like sort of a sage in a weird sort of way who really didn't speak the language. She had come from the other side. Mm -hmm. And then the point was um, that we wanted to get back over to the other side um, because somehow she had gotten trapped in the... And the part was, I just loved it. It was just so terrific, and it's never even been released. Oh, what was that movie called, or do you? Um, uh, um, oh, dear, now you've put me on that. Uh, <laughs> depth of Field. Depth of Field. Well, hopefully someday. Yeah, I mean, I called, um, and uh, his wife was in it, and they've had a baby since. I mean, there's been a lot that's happened. And he, I think they're, you know, trying to get it onto the festival circuit. It was just such an interesting point of view, I thought. And I loved this character who was trying to communicate, but she was just, like, totally a weirdo. And um, I had <laughs> just had a hip replacement. And here <laughs> I am trompsing through these fields with a big staff, and my hair's <laughs> like this wild woman, and I'm wearing rugs and hunks of stuff I mean it was hysterical um but I just thought she was so interesting because she wanted to be part of this world but she knew she wasn't and just trying to make touchstones I just thought the character was so interesting and so hopefully depth of field will go out someday um I know it's it's weird and then you get offered things and you think oh gosh I, I it's just too weird and you you know right. like horror and, and they do killings and stuff just for killing's sake right that to me i i'm not interested in doing those i want to be able to at least learn something from the experience Okay, so spinning off of that, we talked a little bit about uh, the stuff the field, and it's a role that you did that you <laughs> hope more people get to see. Uh, and then across this career, you've got to play many different kinds of characters. But is there a sort of character that you have yet to play that you've always wanted? Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't know. A romantic lead. Um, <laughs> my old age. Um yeah, I, I don't know if you saw uh, Victoria and Abdul, um, Cutie Dench. I mean, what an iconic person, and she's so, so wonderful in that movie. But something like that would be kind of interesting. Um, I have to go and see Annette Benning in the um, uh, Actors or Never Die in Liverpool, or Stars Never Die in Liverpool, I think that's what it's called. Um because that's something, you know, a, a person of a certain age who plays um, Gloria Graham and uh, she ends up, you know, having this affair, which was a true story with this 
much younger man. I mean, those would be kind of fun, I think. It's not something I've gotten to do. <laughs> well, and, and you just use the phrase uh, women of a certain age, and we've had guests on uh, before, people who program female film festivals, and uh, we talk about sort of the trajectory of being a woman in Hollywood. Do you find the kind of roles uh, that are offered are, are, are different or, or they, they change over the course of your career? Is Hollywood still a, a difficult place to, to carve a path for a it woman? It is. It is a hard place to carve a, a space. Um, I don't know. You're always seen as, well, the grandmother or something like that. Um, I think it's much more difficult for women than it is for men. Um, I was talking to Richard Jenkins, who's in The Shape of Water, who mm. played my husband in Witches of Eastwick, who's just a divine actor. And um, he's, he was saying how much easier it is for men to be able to get something than it is for, for women. Um, I mean, I thought I was going to do a couple of things last year, and I had pins in me, and then it never worked out. So, you know, you go through times where I had a series the year before last, and I worked constantly. Right. And then... Then I didn't have the series, and you don't work for a year. And you go, what is going on? I mean, I haven't changed that much. I could still play that, you know, a character. It's a very weird business, and it can be very vicious, I think. I mean, the times that I have a pin, I'd be a wealthy woman if, you know, <laughs> they counted all those pins. So it, it, it's like the kiss of death. Oh, we have a pin in her. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you mentioned The Witches of Eastwick, and for listeners of this show, I feel like I would be raked across the coals uh, since it has become such a fan favorite with the LGBT community if I didn't ask you about it. Spe I specifically have to inquire about that spectacular vomiting scene because <laughs> what a uh, effect. That must have been something to shoot. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> um, well, we shot that for five days um, it was a five-day thing. They had um, also made um, a body, uh, an electronic body, um, which is in the movie so briefly. It's like two seconds of a convulsing thing. But I had to have 12 death masks made so that I, it was horrible. It was an incredibly grueling day. Um, now they've got it much better, but when we shot that, um, they put this seaweedy stuff that they make dentures out of, and you know, and they pack your face with it, and then right. they put something, uh, some sort of plaster over the top of it, and you had straws in your nose and one in your mouth, and and um, you had to do them in different vomiting positions like and so the drool is just dripping it's just horrible horrible and uh and they're constantly patting you on the head and saying oh you're doing great you're doing great well by the time I got home that night my parents um when they lived in um the valley in Los Angeles they would go and play bingo and and they dropped by the house. When, and my mom goes, what's the matter with your face? And I said, oh, it's just dried out because I was, you know, doing these death masks all day. 
<laughs> well, the next day, I had to go and meet with the insurance doctor for medical purposes for the movie and stuff like that. And then he gets me, and then he says to me, all right, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Have you been in a violent situation lately? Have you been beaten? And I said, no. And he goes, well, you. it looks like I had they'd sucked all of the moisture out of my I had two bruises oh my under here where it looked like somebody had literally grabbed me and shoved me against a wall. And um, he says, I, I have to ask. And I said, oh, I had these death masks made yesterday. It literally had sucked everything out of my face. And I literally had bruises under here. So. Who would have thought that one of the most brutal things the director of Mad Max did was a death mask for Witches of Eastwick? Unbelievable. I mean, uh, and, and George is just wonderful. And, of course, one of my favorite movies was The Road Warrior and, and Mad Max. I mean, oh, my God, Mel Gibson crawling across that desert gave a whole new meaning to the word leather as far as I was <laughs> concerned. Um, I I just... And he is d just a dear man. And those parts don't come along very often. I mean, she was telling the truth. She knew that he was the devil. I mean, uh, Jack Nicholson um, had suggested that George meet me for that part because in the book she's much older and and uh, she's not a fanatic. Right. The devil's making her do all these things because she knows, as Jack's interpretation was, she's the fourth witch because she was a contemporary, and she is the one that knows, and I'm just trying to warn people. Right. And, of course, then he ends up destroying me. And um, the cherry pits, uh, we had big buckets of cherries, and uh, so I, you know, it was in some sort of snotty kind of stuff. And so I would throw it on my face. Uh, sometimes I would have them in my mouth, you know, like so that you could do the thing. So the big throw-up scene was um, these tanks that were filled with the stuff. And then I had a long tube that came up my dress and down the arm and landed right here in the pit. Mm -hmm. So when I would go, like, you know, to throw up, it would shoot out and it would look like it was coming out of my mouth. Well... The first take, it just it went really well. We kept I kept doing this thing, and then so they said, okay, but first for security reasons, let's just do one more take. That meant I had to have my hair all blown out. I had to go and have a whole new outfit put on. We had to get organized. I guess it was about an hour later we came back. So we're going through the whole scene, and I go to throw up, and nothing happened. Oh, no. Nothing came out of the little tube. So I I just kept doing this. Well, I guess the special effects guy kind of freaked out and turned it up so high that it literally hit me on the chin and my arm flew off. It was... <laughs> I, had, <coughs> I couldn't bring my arm down. I was... All those wipeout scenes where <laughs> I wiped the camera out... It shot over the back of the set. It was unbelievable. And here I am with this arm that's like flailing uh, my arms around like, oh, God, it was ridiculous. It was so hysterical. 
Needless to say, we didn't use much of that scene. But I would love to see that footage. Oh, my (laughs) God. It was just hysterical. Literally like this. It went, my arm went like this and shot over the back of the set. Well, and at the beginning of this discussion of Witches of Eastwick, I said it is a film that has been embraced by the LGBT community. And uh, I've actually seen a production of it done by drag queens. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah, I was up in San Francisco with Peaches Christ. And um, I... uh, I think when we first discussed you coming on the show, we talked about how you have found this this place in in the world of of cinema as a queer icon. You have made you've done so many <laughs> roles that uh, have endeared you to the the gay community. I, you know, in in addition to that, you were on the cover of a Sister Sisters single, and uh, I know that was so cool. I, I love doing that. Uh, and. Uh, Recently, you did a music video with Trixie Mattel from RuPaul's Drag Race that Darren right. Stein directed. Yes. Um, have Have you always? I mean, I guess probably from the children's hour, I suppose, had engagement with with LGBT fans, or is that just something you noticed? No, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I have a lot of gay friends. I just didn't, don't even really think of it. I just, I. I don't sit there and say, oh, now there's somebody I'd like, you know, <laughs> as a friend. Uh, no, I don't know. I've just, it's just never been in my reference to think that LBGT people are any different than I am. I did do this movie with Richard Day called Straight Jacket, mm-hmm. which was hysterical. And um, I was supposed to be like this Roz Russell character or talk constantly and stuff like this and everything was this and, you know. And everybody in the movie who was gay played straight. And um, <laughs> all of the straight people, we played gay people. <laughs> and um, Clinton Loop, who's Coco Peru. Who we love. Um, she played another character that kept asking me if I would like to play golf. I mean, it was hysterical. And I lived on the golf course. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the weirdest fucking character. She was so cool. Um, we just had, I, I don't know. It's, and Clinton's ended up being a really great friend, and I think he's just absolutely. You've, you've worked with a number of drag queens, it seems like. Do uh, What do you think about that whole makeup process? My mom is always like, I would never, as a woman, want to spend that time. Oh, well, I mean, Trixie, geez, what I couldn't believe. I mean, unbelievable. Right. Um, but she looked like a, she looked sort of like a skunk. She reminded me of Pepe Le Pew. I mean, it was like the, the, the way her eyes are and stuff like that. Um, that was quite a process to put that makeup on. Um, right. And in this music video, you play Trixie's mom at, in a trailer park, <laughs> right? And you're forcing her to tap dance, if I'm not mistaken? Well, she had to perform. She, <laughs> she was a performer and she was, it was a sort of like a, Loosely based on a Jean Benet sort of weird thing that she was part of, um, the, one of those beauty pageant things. Right. And so, yeah. I mean, it was just a strange, weird video. Um, now, that music video is called uh, Little Baby Beauty Queen yes. uh, by a band called Deep Valley. It was directed by a friend of the show, Darren Stein. And you can check it out on YouTube. If you want to see Veronica get her wicked trailer park mom on, <laughs> it's it's a delight. It really is. In my black and white check dress with my big hair, <laughs> with so much hairspray. Um, and I remember when I was like 16, there was this show called 77 Sunset Strip mm-hmm. years ago. 
and Connie Stevens, I believe, was the girl, and she would put a little pink, a, a little bow right here, like her hair would be teased, right. and then she'd have the bangs, and she'd have this. I thought that was so cool. I remember making dozens of those in different colors, and I would put it in with my little bobby pin. I mean, oh, God, that was an era. And so that's what I said. Oh, I have to have a little <laughs> bow. I mean, it's like going back to some horrible youth. Oh, my God, when you look at pictures and you go, really? I mean, you know, with this big, huge beehive, it was very big. Well, you talk about drag. That's all sort of performance uh, apparel. That whole era, the Connie Stevens, that, you know, you look, right. the whole thing that John Waters has paid homage to, the beehive hair, um, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And then, of course, we all heard it. Because I was raised um, in Catholic schools. I went to all the Catholic schools. And, of course, you'd hear about the beehive. Th and those girls had razor blades in them. Oh. And they used to hide the razor blades in their beehives. I mean, that's isn't that horrible? That's horrible. It's also, <laughs> it's also kind of just really lazy propaganda when you think about it. Because what's that really achieving? <laughs> doesn't achieve anything but those were the bad girls and then you'd sit there and you go oh well how do they yeah, yeah. those were always my favorite girls <laughs> but um one thing i always like to ask guests when they come on the show since this is a show that is in honor and praise of movies uh what have you seen lately that you really enjoyed or that inspired you um movies that i've seen uh, shape of water i just thought was magical i just i i really I really liked that movie. I just thought it had a lot to say, and it was so beautifully shot. And the whole love story of this creature, which, I mean, is it's wonderful. I loved <laughs> I, Tanya, with, about Tanya Harding. I, I just thought it was, I mean, what that girl went through. It sort of, like, justifies why right. she... And it wasn't even her doing it. It was that stupid husband of hers, and... And him hiring that guy that looks like Javier Bardem in Old Country for Old Men with those dark circles and that hair, and he comes out with that stick and cracks her kneecap. I mean, it was just like, oh, my God. That movie is just a hoot and a half. You know what I really thought was interesting about I, Tanya, is I remember the media circus when that happened and, and how she got very vilified. And I kind of, after watching the movie, felt apologetic decades later. Like, we really drug this woman through something. Well, look at her life. Her yeah. mother was an absolute, oh, she was horrible to her. And then she married that guy, what, three times? Yeah. Who used to beat her up. And, and I mean... When you, you and horrible things that like when she you know make her own costumes and well you just aren't presenting yourself in the proper way. Right. I make my costumes. I don't have a thousand dollars to buy a costume. You know, I just and I thought Margot Robbie was just fantastic because she's so gorgeous and but she looked like Tanya Harding and that she did. big bushy hair and the. I mean, I thought she was fantastic. That grin, you know, that <laughs> sort of forced grin. Um, what I thought I, she was terrific. Yeah, what I really liked about that film is it shows that there's often more than one side to every story. Absolutely. Uh, I do have to ask, before we head off into the night, you recently did reprise your role uh, from Alien for the video game. 
Oh, yeah. What, what's that like returning to a role years later and for a completely different medium? Well, everybody knows what happened. So, I mean, I, I wasn't a huge big part of it, I guess. I mean, I had... Um, they actually took lines from the movie, mm-hmm. and we sort of got to look at different sections first before we did it. And I don't know. I've done other video games. Um, what is that? Call of Duty or whatever. I'm um, one of those where I'm always screaming and carrying on. But I think what was fascinating about that is it's from the perspective of the person who's playing the game. Right. So if you want, if they want you to live, you do it in five different ways. I mean, I all of a sudden I was like boss woman, and I, you know, I was doing these things and calling people together, and then I was a medic that was, you know, needed medicines, and you fall apart, and you do it all these different ways, which is kind of interesting. Same lines, but just different ways because the person who's playing the game has control over what you're doing. Right. Whereas with Alien, I didn't really have much choice. I mean, my character had already been done many years ago, and right. so we all know I bite the dust. <laughs> um, I was the last one to go, though. That's so true. You held on. I held on. Uh, and it was kind of fun to see everybody. I mean, Yoffit was there, and Tom, and... I mean, they were got everybody back, so that was cool. That's fun. It's fun to have a reunion, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Uh, you did mention briefly, uh, so my second to last question, because you, you, you um, sp- spurred this on. Oh, you men- so sorry. You, you mentioned crying and carrying on for Call of Duty. And I don't know if you know this, but on your... I think it was Call of Duty. It was one of those big things. Well, I'm not a gamer, so I'm sure someone on the internet when they listen to this is going <laughs> to tell me one way or the it other. It wasn't Call of Duty. It was this, this. Yeah, but um, you... I don't know if you know this, on your IMDb profile, they say that your trademark is that you frequently play characters who are prone to fits of hysteria. Uh, But you have played many, many characters over the years, and I would argue that most of them are not in hysterics. So for you, what would you like to say that your trademark as an actor is, if you have one at all? Um... Well, I try to portray the character as best I can. I mean, I don't sit there and think, oh, well, this is my spot. I can become hysterical. <laughs> um, it just so happens, like, there have been accidents that have happened. Um, invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, the end of the movie. I, if you think about it, my character was the one that was totally together. I knew that I had to, we watched each other. We didn't fall asleep. I mean, I'm sure she was on many bennies. Um, <laughs> but I was told one thing, and Donald Sutherland was told another by Phil, and we walked around the block, and I approached him like thinking I was testing him to see, you know, Matthew, Matthew, and he doesn't say anything, so I think he's part of what we've been trying to, you know, survive. Right. And then he pointed his finger at me, well, I just went ballistic. I didn't expect that at all. I didn't know he was going to do that. And it was just a natural reaction. I guess the, I, the thing was I had the character so down that that's right. what she would have done. Um, same thing with, um, I don't know. It was interesting Like when we did uh, Witches of Eastwick, when I fall down the flight of stairs. Right. 
Well, that would have been easy, I guess, to become hysterical or, or whatever it was. But I had been in a car accident in 1981. I, and my, uh, I broke my ankle in 35 places, and it came out, and it was disgusting. But I pulled it all back together. Um, I realized when I did, I was total control. I was in a state of shock. I pulled my leg back down and pulled the bones back in. Um, I saw this guy backing up his car. I told this woman who was standing there going, you know, bless you, bless you, all this. I said, he's backing up the car. Get his information. I mean, and it turned out he was trying to pick up this girl who was standing on the corner. Oh, <laughs> and uh, he, I know, totally salacious. But so when I did, which is of Eastwick, and I fall down that stairs, I was just as calm as could be. I was totally in control. I think I've broken my leg. I mean, now, it could have gone the other way. Right. But that wasn't what my reaction was. As And I thought, well, this is much more interesting. And that's how it, it's so, I love pieces in life where you can go back on them. Right. Um, I was when I was married when I was like nineteen. My husband thought it would be a fun thing to do. We had this old English house on the corner of Whitley and Las Palmas. He turned all of the. He went in and he turned all the lights off in the house. Hmm. And I was upstairs. I was vacuuming or something like that. And I thought, well, that's so weird. I come down the stairs and he steps out of the closet. Totally freaked me out. I mean, it was like I just froze and then. He goes, it's okay, it's okay, and I became hysterical. I remember going, remember this, you will use this someday, and that was Alien. So whoever is editing IMDb, <laughs> take note, Veronica Cartwright is a actor who is in control and committed, <laughs> not prone to hysterics. Uh, that's a great trademark to have, I think, is that you approach everything with commitment. Uh, what can people see you in next? What are you working on now? Um, I'm starting 2018. I'm open. Um, hopefully next year I'll get to be on Willing Grace. I thought I was going to get to be on this year because I'm Jack's mom oh, on Willing right. Grace. And I thought maybe it would happen this year, but we know they're picked up for another season. So I'm going to just put it out there that I get to do that again. Well, we hope to see you on TV. We hope to see you at the movies. Casting directors who listen to the show <laughs> hire this icon of cinema. We are so happy that you came on, Veronica. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. It was really fun. I had a good time. It was truly a gift, and thanks again. Uh, this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always, in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. <laughs> Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone, edited by Drew Phillips. <laughs>